Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We have a fantastic show planned for all of you listeners today as I am joined by the man behind the best research database in all of tennis, a returning champion here at Cracked Rackets, Tennis Abstracts. Jeff Sackman joins the show today to discuss the first third of the 2021 season with the Miami Open's conclusion, our opening hardcourt swing of officially in the books, all eyes turning to the events on the ATP and WTA tours happening on the clay this week. But of course, with that transition, it allows us a little bit of time to reflect on those first three months, take a look back at the statistics that emerge, look for any trends we might be seeing, look for the breakthrough players, the players who may have fallen off a bit. Of course, Tennis Abstract offers ELO ratings, which you hear me refer to all the time that measure, you know, who you're playing, not just where and when you are playing them. And of course, on today's podcast, I allow Jeff to give you guys a full explanation of those ELO ratings, the methodology behind how they are determined. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation. We then run through you know, the breakthrough performers, the most notable trends on the men's side. We do the same thing with the women. He, of course, may be the only person who's a bigger Arena Sabalenka fan at this point than I am. So we have a little Sabalenka fan club session. We talk about Serena Williams Power Tennis Neighborhood. It's such a fun conversation that I know all of you listeners will enjoy. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out here on the Great Shot Podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, the support we get from our Patreon family, and of course, the support we get from our sponsors at Turna and Gamma. Now, you guys know Turna Grip is synonymous with grips everywhere across the globe. It's that bluish purple hue you see on the bottom of professional rack. It's everywhere. Junior opponents you're playing, they're probably using Turner Grip. College tennis players, more likely than not, using Turner Grip. That's because their their performance in hot and humid conditions is unmatched. The tackier, uh, the grip only gets tackier. The sweatier you get. Now, of course, you can find Turner Grip wherever you are searching for your tennis equipment. For us, that's often at MidwestSports.com. But you can also contact Turner Grip directly by emailing them at sales at UniqueSports.com or calling 800 800- 554-3707. You tell them Crack Racket sent you. They'll hook you up with some free samples and, of course, take care of you. Our friends at Turner Grip treats us all like family. They can treat you that way as well. If you want to get involved, go to or call, I should say, 800-554-3707 or email sales at uniquesports.com. Let them know that Crack Racket sent you. Of course, you need a little bit broader than that. You need perhaps the newest strings, the newest replacement and overgrips. You need a new dampener. Anything you need to update your technology, our friends at Gamma Sports have you covered. And if you go to GammaSports.com right now, you use our promo code CRACK20, you'll get 20% off your order. Again, that's the newest strings, the newest uh, grips, the newest replacements and overgrips, dampener, anything you need to accentuate the finer points of your racket, our friends at Gamma Sports have them go to gammasports.com and remember use that promo code crack20 to get 20% off your order. Maybe you need to buy a new stringer. Maybe you're playing a lot more. You've been popping strings more frequently than you would like. Our friends at Gamma have you covered. Gammasports.com. The promo code is crack20. With that in mind, bit of a long-winded intro. I apologize for that, but I know you all are going to enjoy today's podcast. So without further ado, here is my first third review 
with Tennis Abstracts, Jeff Sackman. Joining us on the podcast today, a man who is thoroughly trying to knock me off my tennis podcasting corner. You may know him as the host of the Expected Points podcast, host of the Tennis Abstract podcast, the man behind TennisAbstract.com. Joining us once again on the show, returning Crack Rackets champion Jeff Sackman. Jeff, welcome back. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. It's a fantastic self-esteem boost to get an intro from you anytime, Alex. Oh, that's what I try to do. I just try to lift everyone's spirits at the beginning because then I badger them down with my pestering through the course of the podcast. So you start on the high note and we fall from there. But I have to ask, you are on the daily podcast grind now. There's like three people in the world I can talk about this with. It's fun, right? It's kind of addicting. It is. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really forces you to think about, I mean, everything you normally think about with tennis, when you start doing it daily, it forces you to get out of the narratives, right? Like I often I'll be thinking, Oh, I wrote about this yesterday. I should revisit this today. But it's like, no, that's what I did yesterday. I need to do something new. So you constantly have to just keep shifting gears and finding new interesting stuff to think about, which really unearths some topics that I don't think I would have engaged with otherwise. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite today, you just did a, the Expected Points podcast, which is a three to five minute podcast daily for those of you who don't know. Uh, it was on the Sarah matchup we have today, right? Irani versus Rebez Torma? Yeah, exactly. And last time they played almost eight shots per point, which is, I mean, <laughs> for, for the 21st century, that's that might be the record. I should have checked it. I think it's the record among match charting project matches. There's a few Roland Garros matches from the 80s that went longer than that, like 10 to 12 shots per point. But that's just, I mean, that's almost a different sport. But putting putting the two Sarahs on court together, um, I mean, you can't lose with a matchup like that. No, it's a. I don't know if it's a crime against humanity or actually like the biggest charity humanity has ever been offered by the tennis professional world. And yeah, eight shots per rally. That is crazy. I feel like the key in this match, well, Sarivas Torma is going to always make her serve. But it's like if Sarah Irani can make that first serve, then the points get really fun. And then it's going to be a very exciting match. But of course, to your point, I don't know how you can narrow it down to three minutes. Like shout out to you. It's it's a testament to your uh, discipline. There's so much that happens in the tennis world. So it really is just a quick uh, run through for our listeners, because certainly if they're listening to this, the expected podcast uh, points podcast is something they may be interesting in. It's really you, you pick your big stat of the day, right? The thing you're watching most closely. Yeah, I pick I pick three. So it's okay. it's about a minute per per point. And I mean, they, they can be anything like today. It was the the 7.8 shots per point for the last Irani Sribe's turmoil match. Um, the difference in Sebastian Corda's ELO ranking from his actual ranking, which I think is 48 spots, which is pretty out of this world. And then my last one was the number of doubles matches that Matteo Berrettini has played since 2019, which is all of <laughs> one. Um, so, I mean, it's, some of them are kind of off the wall and some of them are, speak to big points and and i have to say since since you're kind of teaming me up for this one like it's it's such a short format and i do try to pack a lot in but i mean there, there's going to be big stuff that i just end up skipping like i kind of felt bad that i haven't done anything specifically on horkach after his big title but i mean everybody's talking about that you don't need me to chip in my 150 words or my 45 seconds on hey great job on winning this title like if i have something interesting to say about it i will but there's a lot of other interesting stuff going on too 
Mm-hmm. No, uh, absolutely agree. Yeah, again, everyone's – that is the, the the fun of it as well and uh, getting to find those random stats, talking about the match that perhaps people aren't talking about. For me today, I'm like locked in on this Davidovich-Fokina matchup he's got later against Demir Zumher because, you know, for Davidovich-Fokina, his big breakthrough was I think in Estoril back in 2019 when he made that run to the semifinals, beat I think Fritz and Monfils. And I don't think – I know because I looked this up yesterday. I'm trying to make play it off like, oh, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. No, I'm right about this one, folks, but I, I was looking it up. Uh, but, like, he got robbed of the clay court season last year. He was a guy you would have circled as someone to perhaps make a big breakthrough, make a big jump, and so that is the fun of the tennis world, is you can find three different stats from three varying uh, matches across the uh, globe on any given day and make a podcast out of it. Now, I will say this before we get into our uh, topic today, Jeff. If you're going to launch another show. I assume it's going to be an Arena Sabalenka fan podcast. All I ask is that you make me a range, you know, a roaming co-host. Like, let me get one episode per month because I feel like we are driving that. Sabalenka is the most entertaining player in tennis bandwagon. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who's driving it, but I'm definitely <laughs> on board. We're careening wildly in every direction. I mean, I I think I tweeted something to this effect in the last week or two that I don't understand how anyone couldn't like her. Like, I, yeah. I guess he, he, everybody kind of feels that way about their favorite player. But I mean, I, I love Simona Halep. I've been a Simona Halep fan since before she was good or at least ranked as good. And I, I get it. If, if you're not into Simona's game, then fine. I can see that. But Arena Sabalenka, I I challenge anyone who's never sat through an entire Sabalenka match to watch it and not feel like the the off kilter crazy joy that she brings to the tennis court. It is it is one of a kind. Coupled with the fact that I mean she's great, and you're going to see some just eye popping down the line backhands in the process. But I mean, it, it's it's a one of a kind experience. And I think everyone should enjoy it as much as we do. Yeah, I, I agree. You get a little bit of everything. You'll get three aces in a row, followed by two double faults in a row, followed by three incredible down the line or short angle cross court winners, followed by three of the worst misses you will see on a tennis court that day. And it's just yeah, it's absolutely delightful. It's everything you want, in my opinion, as a tennis fan. But With that in mind, the reason I wanted to bring you on the podcast today, we're officially through the first third of the season, at least the initial hardcourt wave with the Miami Masters coming to a conclusion. You look at the WTA and ATP level events we have scheduled this week, two for both uh, tours and both of them, uh, or I should say all of the events now transitioning to the, uh, the clay So with that in mind, I figured it would be a good time to kind of look back, reflect on the initial hardcore 2021 season, talk about some of the biggest statistical outliers we saw, talk about the disparities between ELO ratings and the actual rankings we see right now for these players uh, in the ATP and WTA tours. And before we get into that, I just want to quickly, again, kind of give an explainer of what ELO rankings, ELO ratings are, what you guys do at Tennis Abstract. Can you explain that for our listeners once again, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the ELO started out as uh, as a rating mechanism for chess. So ELO is a guy's name. It's a Hungarian mathematician named Arpad ELO. And I think he devised it in the 60s, although I'm not 100% sure about that. And it's been adapted pretty wild, widely for other sports and video games and all this stuff. And the way it works is 
purely based on who you play and the results when you play those matches. So the ATP WTA rankings are based heavily on the size of the tournament and the round. So, you know, beating Novak Djokovic in the second round isn't worth very many points, but beating him in a Grand Slam final is worth tons of points. In ELO, if you beat Novak Djokovic, you beat Novak Djokovic, period. That's the end of the story. And you can argue about whether that's how it should be or not. And I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to both sides of that debate, but when it comes down to it, what I want out of a ranking system is predictiveness. I want a ranking system where the person who is rated higher is more likely to win the match. And that's really hard to do in tennis, as anybody who bets on tennis knows. But what ELO does consistently is it does a better job of putting the better player above the weaker player. Uh, it's not perfect. I and mean, we're talking about pretty small margins in tennis where any ranking system is going to be wrong 30 to 40% of the time. But of ev every like general framework I've seen, the ones that are floating around out there, ELO is the best at putting the players who are better on top of the ones who aren't. And the way it does that is just by looking at these head-to-head -head matchups. So every, every rating you see is based on two things, the results that a player has has achieved based on who they've played and how much information we have about them. So for instance, Sebastian Corda is just flying up the rankings right now because we don't have a lot of data on him. And for those of you who have a statistics background, you know about Bayesian statistics, the idea that when you're, when you're updating your belief about something, the amount you update is based on how much you knew before. So if Novak Djokovic wins a match, like it doesn't really tell you very much. We pretty much knew he was gonna win. But if Sebastian Corda comes out and beats Diego Schwartzman, that tells us a lot. So beating Diego Schwartzman is worth a lot more points for Korda than it is for Djokovic. And that's one of the things that Elo is able to take into account that the, the official rankings aren't. So I might have gotten more into the weeds than I needed to there. But <laughs> if, it, if there's a takeaway, it's that it, it is better than the ATV WTA rankings. It's not as easy to understand why someone goes up X points from last week to this week or how many points somebody's gonna get from winning tomorrow's match. But the end result, when you're looking at the numbers, the numbers are more likely to tell you what's going to happen than the official rankings are. Yeah, I think that was a pretty good synopsis, and Cracked Rackets fans will know I refer to ELO ratings, I think, on every mini-break podcast, particularly during this season when we do have to adjust the rankings given the protections put in place for this pandemic. And you guys also launched the yearly ELO ratings, which I believe is an even more, you know, that's just 2021-centric ELO, right? That's just who you've played this season. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, it's what I like to call it is it's ELO for the race. So sure. yeah, it's, it's based only on 2021 results with the, with the caveat that like when, when we look at Djokovic's nine matches, we're taking into account what we know about the nine guys he's played. So we're taking the career information we have for those nine guys mm -hmm. when we rate Novak Djokovic, but we're only looking at those nine matches for Djokovic. So that, so that way we're not totally starting from scratch. We're not pretending like, 2010 through 2020 didn't happen but we're saying what do we know about Djokovic based purely on how he has played this year and of nine and oh is pretty darn good it wasn't quite <laughs> as good as Karatsev looked before Miami but now that Karatsev lost a match and came back to earth a tiny bit um, Djokovic is back on top in that one but I mean again going back to the idea of how much information we have these rankings are a, a lot more subject to change because if, if all we know about Djokovic is nine matches then the 10th match is going to tell us a lot compared to looking at the career view where we have a thousand matches and the thousand and one th match or thousand and first I guess match um, 
that doesn't tell you very much, but on a yearly basis, then you can look at it more like the race does where things are going to bounce around. I like to compare it to, to a team sport, like say baseball right now. Like if, if the, I don't know, the Baltimore Orioles are in first place right now, you're not really saying the Baltimore Orioles are the best team in baseball. That would be crazy, but you can say they have won more games than anyone else in the AL East up to this point. Mm -hmm. And we know that's going to adjust the same way that we know that, Probably Martin Fucevic is not going to be number six at the end of this year. <laughs> well, uh, I think my that, favorite part of last week was seeing Karatsev at number one. I was like, can we not change this for the rest of the season? Can we just agree he's number one on something? Well, and I'm curious what you think about this, Alex. I, I think that's a huge win for the sport if people focus on the race. I mean, you can you can take the regular race. You don't need to take my newfangled stat, but... I think we should have more focus on the race and talk about Karatsev as number one, the same way you talk about the Orioles. If the Orioles go like 21 and five in April. Yeah, absolutely. It's the easy comparison to make is to golf, right? Where they're constantly updating the FedEx cup standings. And at the end of the year, there's the FedEx championship run. And, you know, it's not that, I suppose, narrow, uh, or I suppose it's even more narrow for the ATP and WTA tours in that it's the race to one event at the end of the year, the FedEx Cup standings, the culmination of a bunch of events. But I agree with you because, it, you know, the rankings aren't a vacuum of just the season. The ranking are a vacuum of the past, you know, 52 weeks of play or whatever it may be. And so, you know, when you have something such as the race to Shenzhen standings, it's much more reflective of the actual level we've seen from players, particularly early in the season uh, at this point of the year. Because you look last year, I think it was Elisa Mertens, who in the race to Shenzhen was like constantly a top 10 player, was always in that 8, 9, 10 range. And she ended up leading the WTA Tour in wins in 2020, and she ended the season outside the top 15 of the rankings. And, like, that's asinine. And so I would agree with you. Like, I I do think there should be more focus on the race because— and I think this is a good launch point into our conversation today. We can start with the men's ELO ratings, and I know you talked about this on your podcast, but I think it's an inevitable topic to discuss— by yearly rate, uh, ELO rating, Sebastian Corda is number 10. By just general uh, broad ELO rating, Sebastian Corda is number 17. In terms of the ATP rankings right now, Sebastian Corda up to a new career high of number 62, but outside the top 50. I think if you asked any fan who spo- follows the sport week in, week out, which of those rankings is most accurate, you would say the ELO rating. You would say Sebastian Corda is a top 30 player right now. And his ranking should reflect that, right? Well, I, what I always like to look at is the guys who are around him in the various mm-hmm. rankings, because it's. It, I think we all have some notion in our head of what a top 20 player is or what a top 50 player is, but it's a lot easier just to compare one guy to another. So it's interesting that packed together 13, 15, 16, and 17 is Fucevic, Karatsev, Horkac and Korda. So these are all these guys who have really rocketed up the ELO, but the ATP rankings are lagging. But whether or not you think they match with what your vision of a number 15 or top 20 player is, right behind them is Bautista Agu. I mean, I I can accept that he's better than those guys, but only in the long term. After that, you've got Filip Krajinovic and Denis Shapovalov. Like, are, are you really going to tell me that Krajinovic is a slam dunk over Korda in a head-to-head? I mean, I uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to make that argument. So do that exercise for the next 10 guys on the list and tell me that Korda isn't better than they are. I mean, I 
I think he is. I mean, it's 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 a, a tough thing to to really get your head around that someone can go so high in the rankings in large part because they've won a couple challengers. But if someone 20 years old does go out and win a couple challengers and follow that up with a bunch of wins against quality tour level players, then I mean they're ready to go. I mean, maybe 17 is too high, and we'll find out soon. But I, yeah, I'll I'll take 17 over 65 any day for Corda. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's the flip side of that and, you know, some of the notes I had written uh, in the lead up to this. And in terms of the race, in terms of the yearly ELO, you look at a guy like Sebastian Baez, who, or Baez, I apologize if I mispronounce that, who by yearly ELO is number 19 uh, in uh on the tennis abstract ELO ratings right now, and that comes off of the back of an incredible past 52 weeks. He's 29 and nine. You want to narrow that even just to 2021. He's 14 and two during that time span. He's made a couple of challenger finals, won a couple of challenger titles. That being said, if you watch Sebastian Baez, no one's going to look at him and say, that's the number 19 player in the world. That is where, you know, right? That's where ELO, I suppose, especially yearly ELO gets a little bit skewed just because he's played more matches and had more success than other players. But, I mean, to your point, you look at Sebastian Corda's last 52 weeks. He's won the first two challenger titles of his career. He made his first ATP career final. He made Roland Garros round of 16. He made quarterfinals in Miami. He's 30-9 and overall. The majority of that success has come at the ATP level. I mean, even under traditional metrics, that's the resume of a top, 30 top 40 guy and it's like the ranking protections just don't allow that guy to advance and again I'm not trying to skew the or, you know skewer the ATP and WTA for protecting players not comfortable playing in a pandemic I, I completely understand that and we've discussed that topic many that's one of those things that have been discussed on many topics on many uh many podcasts for many occasions but I would agree with you. Like, you look at the surrounding group for Sebastian Corda ELO-wise, yeah, he has played closer to the uh, to the, to that group, to the Hercots level, to the RBA level, than he has to the guy he's cur- guys he's currently next to in the actual rankings in, you know, the Feliciano Lopez, Jordan Thompson, Sam Queries of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's important to understand what the ATP and WTA rankings are trying to do. And that's something that I always try to emphasize is that the ATP and WTA rankings are pushed into service as this vaguely predictive thing. Like we want them to work in a predictive way and say, okay, this guy who's number 65 right now is probably not nearly as good as this guy who's number 25 right now. That makes sense. But at the same time, like you say, the official rankings are they exist partly to protect their players or they exist to, to maintain a certain type of fairness because they are also the entry rankings. And the purpose of entry rankings is not the same as the purpose of some kind of predictive or fan friendly forecasting rankings. Like the entry rankings probably should project protect players based on their last year or two, or in a more, in a more extreme or an even obvious case, entry rankings or entry, um, rules should protect players coming back from maternity leave or injury or something like that. And that means you can have a player who maybe hasn't played a match in two years, who deserves to be in the tournament, maybe deserves to be ranked in the top 100. Like I think Carlos Suarez Navarro still is like when, when, when we say that ELO and the official rankings have a discrepancy, like 
deserving or fairness, those words don't come into it. It's just a, a different kind of mechanism for different purposes. The problem is that most people don't think about that distinction. So you end up having people having arguments about the official rankings, trying to press them into service to do something they don't do. And that's why they're not as good as ELO for forecasting purposes, because that's not what they're designed for. They're designed to reflect sort of an average of 12 months of action, which means they end up being sort of the where the tour was six months ago, or right now they're where the tour was between six and 12 or 18 months ago. But even like the best non-pandemic circumstances, they're never gonna tell you how players are playing right now. And that means that, yeah, Sebastian Corda is number 65, even if everybody knows, especially people who are about to play Sebastian Corda next, they know that he's better than that. And sometimes we say that. We will say a player is playing better than their ranking, which if you're thinking in forecasting terms, that's a that's a paradox or that that's a that's an oxymoron. Um, we shouldn't be able to say things like that. But because the rankings are doing more than one job, we end up with that kind of dif- uh, distinction that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And again, I made a, a list of some of the players who stand out more by ELO rating right now than they would by their actual rating. Now, Karatsev has sort of evened uh, his ELO rating. Uh, you know, ELO, I suppose he's a top 10 guy right now, or let's see, in non-yearly ELO rating right now, uh, just general ELO rating. Uh, we will see that Aslan Karatsev is currently at, let's see what position, sorry, I'm scrolling 15. between tabs here. He's at 15. Yeah, and in the live rankings right now, Karatsev, uh, inside the top 30. Now he's currently at number 27. That feels about right for him. It's so funny, though, to see a guy like Yannick Sinner, who even before this week via ELO rating was someone inside or around that top 10. You look by broad ELO rating, he's the number eight player. You look at the yearly ELO rating right now, Yannick Sinner, crazy to think. Uh, He's also number eight there. Again, in the actual rankings with his results this week, Sinner up to number 22. I I think if you ask people over the last 52 weeks, has Yannick Sinner been more a top 25 guy or more a top 10 guy? They may also argue top 10. Curious how you feel about that. And that that comes down to, again, to what you think of as a top 10 guy or a top 25 sure. guy. Because if you, if you think of a top 10 guy as an elite, like big four or close then you're really not talking top 10 i think a lot of the a lot of the time people debating whether someone is a top 10 player it comes down to the definition there's always guys in the top 10 who don't really feel like a top 10 guy like matteo berrettini right now i mean he's great i think he'll have a great career but i mean he's pretty fringy as a top 10 player right now is sinner as good as that right now yeah absolutely i mean is he guaranteed to be you know top 10 for the next three seasons i don't know i'm not going to go that far but yeah, looking at his his results, so many wins. And that's something that ELO takes into account that's, this is partly a flaw in the system, or not a flaw, it's a limitation in the system. And partly just the nature of forecasting is, you mentioned Sebastian Baez a few minutes ago, that he, he's very high in the yearly ELO, which is, I mean, it, it's really just a toy stat when you're looking at a guy who's yeah. played just a few tournaments. But part of the reason he's so high in that stat is because he hasn't lost very much. I mean, <laughs> if someone goes... 14 and one or 14 and two, I think I exclude retirement. So Baez is 14 and one by that measure, then Elo doesn't really know how good he is. And, and if you think about it from a purely logical perspective without watching the matches, which I understand, you probably want to watch the matches, but if you're, if you don't watch the matches, you just look at the results and you see that somebody's winning virtually every time, 
you see, okay, he's definitely good enough for the challenger level. You don't know how he would do if he if they played Roland Garros today. I mean, you and I can watch Sebastian Baez play and say, okay, well, he maybe will luck into a draw where he can win a match or two at Roland Garros, but he's not going to challenge for like a semifinal in at the French Open. But if all you know is this 14 and one, then we know that you haven't really found his ceiling. And I feel like that's what's going on with Sinner. Going back to last year, he, he kind of graduated from winning a bunch of challengers, but he won Sophia and the Great Ocean Road back to back. So that's 10 matches in a row. He won a couple of losses there, but here he is again with another five matches in a row. To some extent, we've, we've found his current ceiling where, okay, he can't beat Harkoch on every match. He can lose to Karatsev. He'll lose to Medvedev like everybody else. But looking at his losses, Rublev, Zverev, Nadal, like his ceiling is very high. And I think one of the mistakes people tend to make when evaluating prospects is kind of assuming they need this development time. So we, we need to wait for Sinner to prove himself. Well, yeah, you need to prove himself before you elect him like king god of the tennis universe. <laughs> but to elect him as one of the top 10 players in tennis, like, I think he he's done that if you accept that you mean top 10 right now, not some long term accomplishment that's guaranteed to last for years to come. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything you uh, you said there. I mean, I think it helps that he's a redhead, right? So people are just prone to overreacting to everything redheads do. But um, yeah, I mean, look at number 9, 10, 11, 12 right now in the actual ATP rankings. If I told you, you know, it's Sinner versus Schwartzman, you probably, you know, if I told you Sinner wins that match, you're not going to be surprised. If it's Sinner versus Berrettini, again, you're not going to be surprised. We've watched Sinner play RBA three sets now back-to-back in Dubai and Miami. That's a, that's a great match. Shapovalov, that's a pick against Gofen. That's a pick against Carino Busta. You may even lean towards Sinner at this point. Definitely. Those are the guys. Yeah, those are all of the guys surrounding the top 10 of the ATP rankings. I agree with you. Yannick Sinner is right there in the mix with all of them. I want to quickly run through some of the other guys who have stood out to me in the Eloverse ranking disparity and then get your thoughts on them, get your thoughts on perhaps anyone else we're missing before we transition to the women. But you know, a, a guy you brought up, Marton Fucevic, who 26 and 11 in his last 52. Five of those 11 losses, folks, came to Andre Rublev. And I think we can all understand that fact. One of them came to Yannick Sinner uh, during that stretch of time. He made Roland Garros fourth round. He made third round U.S. Open, the final in Rotterdam, quarterfinals in both Doha and Dubai. You know, he's number 13 by ELO. He's number 40 by ATP ranking. Again, I would say that's a guy who's closer to his ELO ranking than he is to how he's played at the ATP level. Another guy who has, or, you know, a couple other guys who have stood out to me, Lloyd Harris, who made the big run to the final, I believe, was that Doha or Dubai? I, I'm mixing them up at this point, but he's another guy who's been uh, really, really good uh, through the past 52 weeks. You look right now in the ATP rankings, Lloyd Harris uh, currently number 15. You look at him by ELO rating, Lloyd Harris currently number 26. Some others, you know, Shardy, Rusevori, Musetti, Munar and Baez, Zizou Bergs. Those are all guys to me that by ELO, because they've played more and they've had success of late, ELO rewards them more than the ATP rankings have. Are there any other players I'm missing from the reward aspect? Any guys who you, you know, you've jumped out, you see them 
in their ELO ratings, and you think look for that guy to make a corresponding jump up the actual ATP ranking soon. I think you you pretty much nailed Did the I steal? I, I stole all the good names. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but if if you go down a little bit further, you see the you come back to this ceiling idea I was just talking about that you have some guys who are excelling at the challenger level, or maybe one ATP tournament like. Francisco Serendolo is number yeah. 49 in the ELO. So, and that's an incredibly clay-based um, ranking, obviously. He's barely played on hard courts and not well when he does. But a guy who who wins clay challengers, who can compete at tour level, like give him a proper clay season like we're about to have. And yeah, I can see his ATB ranking catching up with that. Um Thomas Machak, um, who I'm probably mm-hmm. mispronouncing, he's at 53 and virtually all at challenger level. So it, it's really tough with those guys to know whether the ELO ranking is right. But very anecdotally, I've noticed it seems to be more right than wrong. Every once in a while, it does get really excited about somebody like, I mean, again, the the yearly ELO stat is not as predict or not predictive at all. So I don't want to go all in on Sebastian Baez here, but it has <laughs> Sebastian Baez at number 76 in the overall ELO. And I mean... I've watched Sebastian Baez play. I love short guys. I used to be short myself, but <laughs> I don't I don't buy number 76 for Sebastian Baez. I mean, I, yeah. I want it to be true, but I don't think it's true. So sometimes Elo gets overexcited about someone because it just doesn't know how good they can be because they haven't got the losses to kind of set the level. But I mean, yeah. Machak in the top 60, uh, Sarandolo at the edge of the top 50, that that seems plausible to me. They, they could easily get there and... It's just going to take a lot of time for the rankings to adjust after the pandemic and hopefully have a regular schedule where those guys can go play matches on the surface they they want to play on, get some rhythm. And I mean, we'll finally get to see how they'll play at tour level as opposed to just leaving them stuck to play challengers on their home continents. No, 100%. And look, I, I know I've, I've sung a lot of praises your way. You can probably flip it the other way. Like, Nicolas Basilashvili has been horrible the last 52 weeks, but he did just win a big title uh, in the Middle East, and he's number 83 via ELO. You want to say he should be a little bit higher, fine. You want to say a guy like Lorenzo Sinego who's been a rock these last 52 weeks, he should be top 50, not at number 61, fine. You know, if you want to say Benoit Parrot number 89 is still too high, I'll listen to to that argument as well but like yeah I I would agree with you more often than not particularly given rankings freezes because you know the when and where of the of when you're where you're playing right now for all of these players is up in the air it still is a pandemic but the who you're playing doesn't change you know once that result is locked in you have played x player uh elo ratings do a fantastic job of reflecting that fact and i do want to point out on the yearly elo rating one last qualm i have before before we move to the women, Alex Demenauer, who won a title earlier this season to start the year in Antalya. Now, he struggled since then. I believe he's 7-6 and six overall. He's number 73 via ELO rating. And, you know, you look right now in the actual ATP rankings, Demenauer still inside the top 30. He's right now at number 25. You look at him at the broader ELO ratings, Demenauer still a top 30 guy as well, number 25 in the broader ELO that was a guy that stuck out to me because I'd figured with an ATP title, he'd be rewarded a little bit more. And yet he really wasn't. Well, think about how he, how he got that title. I mean, the first two matches yeah. he played were against Malik Jaziri, who's basically an, uh, doesn't a play non-entity anymore. on hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Adrian Andreev, a qualifier ranked outside the top 500. Vasilash Vili, who hadn't won a match 
in forever and one quality win over W. Gofan. He has the, the final win over Bublik, but that's a retirement. So those are excluded from the calculation as that one should be since that was two whole games. Yeah. So he's got two really cheap wins, one quite cheap win against Baslashvili and one solid but not spectacular win against Gofan. That's, that's the title. And since then, I mean, Tennis Sandgren, not a bad win on hard court, but then Pablo Cuevas on hard court. I mean, that doesn't count for much. And then a win over John Millman. I mean, maybe he should get bonus points for that like 49 shot rally they played, but that that's it. I mean, I look at that and I see, I don't know, two and a half good wins in the whole season against a hard court loss to Daniel Galan. And I mean, it's, that's a pretty weak season. Maybe 77 is too pessimistic, but I mean, and that's, that's the thing. Like you get such a boost from the title in the ATP rankings that you forget that, I mean, there are some cheap titles. I mean, if you think about it in those terms, then people will all agree. Yeah. Some titles are cheap, but I think a lot of people have a hard time like accepting the fact that you don't deserve the ranking just because you happen to luck your way into a good draw there's just too too much of a connection in everyone's heads between the trophy and the points yeah I guess my my qualm would be the Bautista Goot lost three or you know I think it's one two three four his last five losses and five of the six this year were three set losses so it's not like he's getting blown out it's not like he's playing terrible tennis you're right the qual you know his victories have been in three sets as well primarily and yeah it wasn't a spectacular draw in Antalya that was just an outlier to me that was definitely a guy who stood out and I was like huh that is worth noting, but I have had concerns about his level this year, and Elo uh, has reflected those concerns. Let's flip gears now, though, and talk about. Actually, the let, let oh, me stop please. you there, Alex. Uh, just one last thing about the, the you're you're right to bring up the three set matches. I think that's a really natural objection for a lot of people to have, mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with small samples. And mm-hmm. I totally agree. If I had if I had a free week to do nothing but make like this great forecasting system based only on 2021 results, then I would absolutely include margin of victory. And that's an important point about ELO in general is, I mean, just like the ATP rankings don't take into consideration whether you're winning third set tie breaks or you're winning six love six one ELO does the same thing. Either you win or you lose. That's it. So there's no bonus points for pushing Novak Djokovic to a fifth set or pushing Roberto Batista Agu to a third set. Um, And if you're dealing with small samples, there probably should be now, Stephanie Kowalczyk, um, who writes the On the T blog, um, mm-hmm. she published an academic paper within the last year or so looking at how much you can improve ELO with margin of victory um, baked in. So taking into account games one or sets one or points one. And she found there is a minor gain to be had. And in, uh, I haven't dug totally into that. And I still need to have some conversations with her to better understand exactly what that's telling us but i mean margin of victory matters a little bit when you're looking at a player like djokovic with a thousand matches you don't need to know how much he won by to know he's really good right i mean Mm -hmm. 900 and 100 or whatever his career i know i'm just throwing numbers out there but his (laughs) his career one loss record tells you all you need to know you don't need to know how many of those sets were 6-1 because if somebody's winning 90 percent of their matches of course a lot of the matches the the sets are 6-1 but if you're doing something on the scale that we're talking about right now, like trying to judge a player like Dimonar based on what, 12, 14 matches, then yeah, third sets versus straight sets, that that tells you something. The fact that he beat Tennis Sandgren in straight sets and 
the last two were 6-1, six, 6-1, one, six, one, then he probably should get some more credit for that or the fact that he pushed Batista Agu to three sets. Like, if you properly take that into account, you could construct a better model based on that small sample and it would rank Demon or higher than guys who are getting blown out of those losses. So, I mean, it, I, I really like the yearly ELO concept, but I think of it more as, as a toy stat, especially in February, March, again, the same way you would if the Orioles go, went, go 21 and five this month, like you're not really going to think, Oh my God, the Orioles are amazing. You're going to think, Oh, this has been a weird month. <laughs> Something's going to have to change here. Just like demon or, you know, he's better than 77th in the world. Something's going to change. These third sets are going to flip the other way. Just like with the Orioles, you could point to their peripheral stats and say, wow, these pitchers are going to have some, have these fly balls start going out of the park. Like, yeah, Demon is going to start winning the third sets. He's going to start getting better draws, or maybe he'll beat Bublik in a completed match and gets point, get points for that. You could build a better model. We're going to get a bigger sample. Um, and, and yeah, there's stuff that you can point to as a knowledgeable fan who watches a lot of tennis that isn't baked into the calculations. Yeah, first of all, we have a huge Cracked Rackets Baltimore Orioles cross-pollination following. You're killing me with our Orioles fans out there today, Jeff. Just well, didn't kidding. they sweep <laughs> their initial series? Yeah, I have no idea. I'm completely kidding. Um, look, all I know is my Tigers are not going to be winning anything this year. It is year two of just a devastating rebuild. Would you trade Cabrera if you were the Tigers? Is anyone going to trade for Cabrera, I suppose, is the better question. Yeah, that is the better question. I th- I think if if you can get much for him, then you probably do. But I I don't know. I mean, there's there's some value in having a reason to get people out to the park, right? I mean, yeah, no, maybe for sure. still a big draw. Yeah, he's definitely if he's not on the Detroit Sports Mount Rushmore, he's in the conversation. But yeah, we'll we'll save <laughs> we'll save the baseball talk for the Sabalenka podcast we host down the road. Um, yeah, no, I I guess the the summary of that would be weighing for results. That's a down the road project for Tennis Abstracts Elo. That's uh once I have a free week, hopefully I'll be able to like that is something you would consider because yeah, I think UTR does that right, or at least they're trying to do that more, trying to determine a quality result versus just. You know, results you get blown out and weighing that into their rating. Uh, and UTR has some of the same challenges as like the yearly ELO, right? Like yeah, exactly. UTR is faced with having to judge someone based off of like eight matches that could be against anybody. Mm-hmm. Whereas the regular ELO that I'm I'm producing, like most of these guys have hundreds of results. I mean, even mm-hmm. a challenger player, they might have a hundred or more results, and we have a pretty good idea of who they're playing. So, I mean, the margin of victory stuff, it it it. It, can't, it, it cancels itself out. Like mm-hmm. there's not a ton to be gained. Whereas I totally see for UTR, there's a huge gain there. Or if you are going to start mm-hmm. making forecasts based off 10 matches, then yeah, you want to know whether those are tie breaks or those are bagels. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, it's more of a yearly thing, right? Versus the broader thing. As you, as you expand the sample size, the more granular result matters less. Yeah, and another way to think about it is the reason Stephanie and I were talking about this is we've batted around an idea of building like a, a full historical ELO back through the whole amateur era, okay. even though all we really have is Grand Slam results. And that, mm-hmm. that's the same problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like if all you have is Grand Slam results, if players aren't going to Australia, then if you're trying to rate somebody who made the third round of Wimbledon in 1952, they might only have yeah. 10 matches for a whole year. So the fact that they lost six love six love to Doris Hart that tells you something very different than than pushing Doris Hart to a third set and going 13 11 or something 
So, I mean, that's even more obscure than the Orioles, probably. To talk about George Harden. <laughs> no, I just want the Pancho Gonzalez, Sebastian Baez, Elo comparison. That's all I want. That's not going to look good for Sebastian Baez. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're definitely not wrong. Yeah, Pancho's going to look incredible by Elo rating uh, because, yeah, so many of the results that we have for him seems to be victories. But, anyways, we've charted off course here. Let's go back uh, now and talk about the women's Elo rating, some of the outliers, because, of course, it feels like in women's tennis, they were a couple of years ahead of the curve in men's tennis in producing all of these funky results and having, you know, a group of beyond 10 players, honestly, 12, 13, 14, who could enter any event and win. And by the way, uh, just because I, I meant to the idea of anyone can win an event. I was looking at the projections this week. The fact that Alias Bedene can go from facing match points or down, what was he, an early break in the third set in his first round match to being the projection favorite to win in Cagliari this week is just a chef's kiss beautiful. Uh, that, that tournament, the projections are wild. Before it's it was Bedene. Because Evans um... and Fritz are the top two seeds on clay. It's hilarious. And Jeff McFarland, who's FBI Tennis on Twitter, yeah. he runs the site HiddenGameOfTennis.com, he pointed out, in my forecast, Evans came in as the ninth favorite. He's the top seed. <laughs> he was the ninth favorite. He's not even going to be favored to win his first match because that's he, he drew Musetti, and Musetti mm-hmm. just blew out Dennis Novak. And even w- without knowing about the blowout, Musetti's still a favorite in that match, whether you're using ELO or common sense. Mm-hmm. But Jeff's forecast had, had Evans at seventh, but... Either way, before it was Bedeni, it was Laszlo Gera, also unseated. So we went from one unseated player as the favorite to another unseated player. And yeah, we've got Evans as the no chance top seed. It is truly wild stuff. It's going to be a fantastic week of tennis, no doubt about that. But of course, there we have two women's events this week. I think it's like 11 top 30 players in Charleston. And then in Bogota, you have the first player I want to talk about when you talk about jumping out in the ELO ratings here to start 2021. Now, by yearly ELO rating, the player I'm going to talk about is ranked number nine by the more broader ELO rating. She's up to number 29 in the WTA live rankings. She's currently at a right a new career high of number 47. Of course, I'm talking about 24-year-old Sarah Cerebez Tormo, the subject of your Expected Points podcast today, a player who in her last three results has gone, and I may screw up the cities, I believe it was title in Guadalajara, semifinal in Monterey, quor- uh, quarterfinal in Miami. I mean, the craziest part is you look at her career historically, she's had the most success on clay courts, and yet through the first third of the season, I think it's pretty safe to say she's been a top 30 player, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And I also love the fact that you've got your audience targeted so well that after that lead up, you said, of course, we're talking about Sara Saribe's Tormo, <laughs> as, if, as if people could suspect you're talking about anyone else. Uh, and the most fantastic thing to me about Saribe's Tormo's run, which is, yeah, totally unexpected, is Remember that Ostrava match, which basically ended her 2020 season. That was the match where she won 10 games in a row. Yeah, 6-0-4-0. 6-0-4-0. And then Sabalenka won the last 12. And, I mean, it, I know momentum is a real thing. I know players and coaches believe a lot in momentum. Commentators believe in momentum even more. But the story of that match and the story of January was that shifted all the momentum. Sabalenka's on a tear because she finished off you know, Ostrava so well. It must, you have to conclude from that, that it must be devastating for Cerebe's Tormo, right? I mean, mm-hmm. 
That's the worst momentum shift ever. And somehow she bounces back from losing 12 games in a row, having a whole offseason to think about it. And she comes out and plays the best tennis of her life. I mean, that, that makes it an even better story than it already is. Yeah, it's and it's just how she does it as well. It's just she turns her matches into a track meet. And just physically, it's she plays, you know, the serve is never going to overwhelm you. You see that serve and you watched it in the Andrescu match in Miami where it was just kind of like Andrescu was like, you know what, it's time for me to be aggressive. It's time for me to step up and hit these second serve returns early, hit them through the court, hit through Cerebez Tormo. And yet... She's going to find solutions. She's going to dip that backhand slice at your feet, put you in uncomfortable positions, hit those two passing shot combos. The first one's low. The second one she chases down, hits by you. And it's just like, yeah, you look at her results. Again, by her last 52 weeks alone, she's got the WTA title. She's got semifinal, quarterfinal, 28-11 and overall. Now, you know, uh, Abu Dhabi quarterfinal as well to start the season. I mean, some of the wins she's gotten over players like, you know, last week it was Jabour Rabakana, Jennifer Brady, the week before, you know, Kaya Yuvan, Jeannie Bouchard, Marie Buzkova, you know, she beat Annette Conteve in Ostrava. Yeah, like, again, 28-11 with a title, a semifinal, and a quarterfinal at a premier event in Miami, that's the resume of a top 30 player. Like, this is where ELO rating shines. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, I'm a little surprised that she hasn't climbed even higher. I mean, mm-hmm. some some of the number wins nine she's... by yearly is pretty high, though. That's pretty that, impressive. Yeah, that is pretty high, and that's what happens when yeah mm-hmm. you you build a one loss record like that, and, and no matter who you're playing, if you win that, like we saw with Sebastian Baez, no matter who you're playing, if you win that many matches, you climb that far up the rate ratings. But I mean, so, some of her wins haven't been as great. You mentioned the good ones, but I mean. All those wins in Guadalajara were relatively weak. You can, Jeannie Bouchard sounds like a big game, a big name, but in terms of what her rating is right now, it's not super high. Uh, Monterey, her wins to get to that semifinal are are pretty weak in terms of the rating. So, I mean, it's not like she's come out and been a top 10 player, but I mean, that's what a top 30 player is, right? Even a top 20 fringe type player is, is someone who just, wins all the matches they should eventually, I mean, occasionally comes out and, and pulls off some upsets. And like you say, the way she's done it is really the marvelous part. She's bouncing back in almost every match, all these three setters, all these two and a half hour matches. She was bageled by Jabour in the Miami fourth round, uh, came back and won six, one in the third set. Like That's not an easy thing to do. And she seems to be doing stuff like that almost every match. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. Like, yes, she has been sensational, and I I do think, again, the ELO rating more reflective than her actual ranking, although she is certainly deserving of entering the WTA Top 50 for the first time in her career. Another pet peeve of mine, and I I suppose our Cracked Rackets listeners have heard me say this before, the fact that Elisa Mertens is not a top 10 player in the WTA Live rankings. Now, she's getting closer. She's up to number 17, which is still five off of her career high of number 12, but just some numbers for you, Jeff, and all of our listeners. By ELO rating, Elisa Mertens, the number 7 player. By yearly ELO rating, Mertens is number 5. On the Tennis Abstract WTA Stats leaderboards, which is a measurement of the stats of the top 50 players. And of course, you can filter by year. Right now, I'm filtered by last 52 weeks. By hold percentage, which is the percent of the time you are holding serve, she's 12th amongst top 50 players. By break percentage, which is the percent of time that you are breaking your opponent's serve, she is number nine. 
the only other player to be top 12 in both hold percentage and break percentage amongst WTA top 50 players is Garbin Muguruza. Now, right now in the rankings, it's funny because neither of them are top 10 players. Uh, Muguruza, number 13. Mertens, number 17. I don't think anyone has any debate. Garbin Muguruza is a top 10, certainly maybe even top 5 player right now. But what do I have to do, Jeff, to get the respect for Elisa Mertens as a top 10 talent, as like the ultimate litmus test gateway, in my opinion, to how good are you as a WTA player right now? If you can't beat Elisa Mertens, you're not a top 10 player. To beat Elisa Mertens, in my opinion, you almost have to be a top 10 player right now. How do you feel about her game? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you there. Like, she's, It seems like she should be number eight. Like, she should be like the Yanko Tipsarevich of the WTA right now. Exactly. You don't, if you were, you know, Muguruza and you saw she was lined up to face you in the semifinals of a big tournament, you wouldn't really worry. You wouldn't feel like you got a bad draw. But, but yeah, if, if you're qualifying for a tournament of 500 or something and you see Mertens as your first opponent, then it's like, oh man, I, had, I thought I had a shot, but I'm out of this in one round. Like, I, I forget what the stat was. I think I did it on my podcast a few weeks ago that I want to say she was 25 and three again in her last matches against um, players ranked below her. I'm making this up. That's probably wrong, but I think it was even more ridiculous than that. She just does not lose matches when she shouldn't. Um, I see she, I say that and she lost to Mukova at the Australian Open and she's ranked better than Mukova. So of course I just proved myself wrong. But for the most part, players she loses to are the ones ranked above her, often ranked far above her or like Muguruza also underrated. But yeah, I mean, is there a good source for um, like the the sort of parallel world rankings where there's no pandemic adjustments? Because I feel like in those rankings, Mertens would be top 10 right now. Is, is Do you know, Alex, is that out there somewhere? I wish I had a better source. I've seen some lists floating out there. Again, so many, so often you use the race to Shenzhen, right, as the best approximation of what the rankings lo- would sort of look like right now, or at least try and cross between the two. It's, I mean, it's tough, and I'm trying to look up the stat right now of how she's doing against players ranked below her. Now, in her last 52 weeks in general, Elisa Mertens, 36-11 and 11 overall since the start of 2020. She's 47-16. and 16. You look at, you know, the opponents she has played ranked lower than her. Here we go. She is 44-7 and seven since the start of the 2020 season against players ranked lower than her. And shout out, as always, to Tennis Abstract. I did all of that searching mid-podcast. Uh, speaks to the search engine you guys have put together but yeah that's like like she doesn't lose to players you know the the seven losses Mukova Garcia Azarenka Sasnovich Putinseva Watson Rabakina the only one of that group I really dislike is the Heather Watson loss because Sasnovich was first match back after the restart uh Rabakina Putinseva they can do their things their top 30 players certainly like yeah, she. You have to be so freaking good to beat her right now. Yeah, and I have to ask Alex since we we were segueing from talking about Sabalenka there. They they are or at least were recently doubles partners. Yeah. Are you a Sabalenka fan because of Mertens or Mertens because of Sabalenka or is this just a happy coincidence? So, uh, great question. I appreciate you asking this. The Sabalenka fandom has 
it, it it's in its own vacuum. It lives in its own plane, its own universe. Because I just I watch her play, and I, I make this analogy all the time. I call it Serena Williams' power tennis neighborhood. And I think Osaka is an owner in Serena Williams' power tennis neighborhood. I think Petra Kvitova is an owner in Serena Williams' power neighborhood. I think they let Garbine Muguruza come hang out at the clubhouse whenever she wants. They're like, you can't own because you're not exactly power tennis, but sure you can come play a round of golf with us any weekend you want. But like. Sabalenka, the second she wins a major, they're bringing her into the club. They're like, you have the power. You have everything we look for here in this elite country club, but you just haven't had the results quite yet for us to include you. That's where the Sabalenka fandom comes from. For me, it's the generation of Mertens, Sakari, Conteve, and Donna Vekic, who all happen to be born around my age. They're all 95, 96ers. I was born 1995. And I just like, there's a parallel universe where those four players are a lead generation, where they're competing for Grand Slams. And I just like, I can't believe they've been boxed out because I watch Elisa Mertens. She can do a little bit of everything. She doesn't have that transcendent talent. But she's so freaking good. So is Sakari. So is Conteve. And yet, like, I, if you're asking me to map out the rest of their careers, I can't because they just don't have the ceiling of some of the other players. Curious how you feel about that quartet as well, that Merton, Sakari, uh, you know, Conteve, not quite Vekic right now. Because all of them, those are three players more valued by ELO rating than they are in the WTA rankings right now. Well, I I have gone on record saying that Sabalenka is going to win 20 slams. So <laughs> as, as far as the career prospects for the other women you mentioned, they're not great because they're going to lose yeah. to Sabalenka <laughs> slams a lot. Um, but I, I, I'm glad you, you brought up this list. I have, I have a question for you. I'm looking at my, my stats leaderboard and sorting by last 52 weeks, first serve points one, which is a pretty important stat. I mean, mm-hmm. I... I would argue that's one of one of the most important stats and one of the ones that's getting more important. So the top five right now is Naomi Osaka, obviously, Serena Williams, obviously, Jennifer Brady, maybe not obvious, but I mean, that's the big, that's, that's a big part of it. That game. makes a so, lot of sense. Yeah. You're not surprised to see her there. Ashley Barty, obviously. So that's the top four. Who's number five. I'm cheating because I'm looking at it right now. Um, but it's, Semifinalist in Miami, Maria Sakari, who I have had the chance to ask because I saw this statistical trend. I think her first serve percentage is a bit down compared to where she was earlier in her career, but her first serve win percentage is up. And that's where Tennis Abstract is the ultimate value because I bring that up to her in her post-match press conference. And she says, oh, I'm glad you've noticed that because I'm trying (laughs) to be more aggressive on my first serves because I need to create some free points for myself. And it's like... She's doing it. The eye tests and the numbers both reflect this fact. Like, I agree with you. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I didn't, I, I can't wait to watch another match of hers with this in mind because I, I didn't know that I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that. And I, I think of her, her game so much as like the, the big loopy shots, the, the slicing serves, like obviously she can hit aces, but I imagine her more with, with sort of the, the bigger spin serves. So I'm not sure I would have even predicted she was in the top half of this list in the top 50. And there she is at number five. I mean, if you want to know why she's winning, there's your answer right there. 
100%. Her career first serve in percentage, uh, first serve make percentage in WTA tour level matches is 61.5. She's at 57.8 this season, but her career win percentage on first serve points, 63.7. It's a small sample size, but she's up to 69.9% right now. Yeah, and that that's, again, where the stats uh, leaderboard comes into play. I, I seriously, I must spend... Uh, nowadays, when I type T on my internet browser, it used to always say, oh, you're going to Twitter. Now, it assumes I'm going to tennis abstract for whatever that's worth, Jeff. Uh, so well, taking over for Twitter is that that's a big deal. Yeah, I, that's probably healthy for me as well. That I'm spending more time not reading mean things, but just trying to learn uh, from the numbers in front of us. But again, in terms of some of the women who stand out, uh, that Sakari, uh, you know, Mertens, Conteve generation, they are all players who are a little bit higher. By the way, do you think Sabalenka belongs in Serena Williams' power tennis neighborhood? I want, I'm glad you asked. I was hoping to expand your metaphor a little bit. So in 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 the story you're telling, I'm imagining this clubhouse where all the players hang out. I mean, there, there's a definite pecking order. Serena's on top. Serena even has an office, and she's the president of the club. In that office, there is a locked safe. She doesn't have the key. All she knows is the previous owner, who is probably Steffi Graf, um, left something really valuable and special in there, but she doesn't know what's in there. Someday... She'll find the key. She'll open the safe, and the contents will be Arena Sabalenka. <laughs> I agree with you. I also think, like, I'm a hundred percent certain about this. Right now, Elena Rabakina and Clara Tossin are the people who valet cars at the front. They're like, trust me. When you guys get a little bit older, we're gonna let you in the club. We're gonna let you have dinners on Sundays, but. For now, you're relegated to just valeting cars. Um, but yeah, I just I love this club because it is a continuing expanding list. I am all in on that. Uh, we hit a bunch of women here, and again, I promised you less than an hour. We are right around that hour mark. So, just any final thoughts? Any other statistical outliers from the first third of the WTA season? Oof, that's a there's a lot um, of them. <laughs> there are a lot of them. I mean, it, it, it's. I was a little disappointed Magruza didn't didn't have a bigger tournament in Miami because mm-hmm. her year has just been so stunning. And in my my yearly ELO ratings, again, they're not predictive, but she's still number one, even with the Miami loss. And it's not even that close. I mean, Barty and Osaka have had very good years, no question about that. But they're like Osaka's 40 points below Muguruza in the yearly ELO. And that's, I mean, that's not a statistical tie. That actually means something. And the other name near the top of that list that I don't think anybody would have picked to be there just ahead of Elisa Mertens is Daria Kazakina. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think she's nearly so high in the overall ELO rating. So it's not like I'm, I'm picking her to start winning every match she plays, but all of a sudden she's a factor again. I remember when I think it was Charleston 2017. I remember this since it was right before the first episode of the tennis abstract podcast, Kazakina played Ostapenko in the Charleston final. So that's, I think I'm right about this. It's four years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there it is. She beat Ostapenko in that final. I remember asking Carl Bialik, uh, these are these two promising players from Russia and Latvia, uh, very different game styles. Who do you think is the big, the big name going forward? And of course, Ostapenko came out and, and won a slam shortly thereafter. <laughs> so the debate seemed to be settled and Kazakina faded way far down the ranking. She was, I mean, barely hanging on in the top 100. And it seems to be switching back again. I think I remember a few years ago, people were big on Kazakina. She was a mm-hmm. she was a, one of the top prospects in the game, and 
I think people have a short memory when it comes to these prospects we get excited about. Somebody turns 23 and they're going <laughs> the wrong direction in the rankings. And it's like, ah, I'm sorry. I, this is going to hit home for you hard, Alex, because I know this is your your period of life. If, if you're not going uphill at, at age 23, 24, I mean, it's over. And Kazakhin is proving that wrong. And there's, I mean, obviously there's tons of evidence of, you know, moving in the other direction at that age. Hobart Horkacz is number one on that list right now. But I think it's easy to forget that, you know, she's she's still figuring out how to play. She's still, you know, developing skills. And based on these last few months, then, I mean, at the very least, she's not an outside the top 60 player uh, mm-hmm. or a number 75 player like she was to start the year. I don't know whether she's going to be top 20 for a long time or I, I I can't believe this, but she actually cracked the top 10 a few years ago. I'm not sure I'm, I'm picking her to land in the top 10 again, but She's certainly more of a player to watch right now than she was even just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. I'm really appreciative that you brought her up. And for the record, today is April 6th, which is officially six months out to my 26th birthday. Why that date is important, because I don't really care about birthdays. You know, once you turn 21, it's all kind of whatever uh, after that. Um, But, you know, I got six months to figure my out before I have to get off my parents' health care, Jeff. So yeah, you're right. I got to figure everything out. I got to get uh, in the right directions moving forward. But yeah, Gavrilova might be the the oldest 23, 24-year-old in tennis history. It is crazy oh my God, to see her. Yeah, she's win only that. 23? Uh, right? Isn't, I think she is only 23, 24 years old. I think I'm right here. Let me look here. No, uh, she just turned 27. Oh, 27. Okay, I'm wrong. Wait, but who am I thinking of then? Daria? Oh, I'm thinking of Kasatkina. Excuse me. I'm thinking of Kasatkina, who's still, I think, only 23 years old. Um, yep. Yeah, Daria Kasatkina still only 23 years old. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's crazy to me. Like she's the oldest twenty-three-year-old in history. Like to see her go from top ten to falling out of the rankings to winning titles here this to start this season and finally look healthy. Um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely nuts. Um, but no, I, again, I, there are so many different players you could turn to, particularly. Uh, it's you know Jess Pagula has been exceptional and her ranking is starting to draw closer and closer to where she's been in the ELO ratings over the past six months. There are you know Jen Brady, all these other players. Iga Swiatek's ranking hopefully someday will catch up to her ELO rating. She can win a Grand Slam, but she just cannot be allowed into the WTA top ten. Um, I guess my final question to you on the subject of the rankings, since we've talked about it so much. I assume you don't stress out too much about that sort of thing because the rankings just kind of are what they are. But would you, if you're the ATP WTA, do you think an adjustment is needed or do you understand what they're trying to do? You mean an adjustment for the pandemic? Like yeah, what they do, you, are doing? do you think it's time to unadjust for the pandemic, time to sort of normalize the rankings? Or, it, it, yeah, are you okay with their continued protection of players? Well, here's what I'm on the record suggesting. And I think I, I think I still mm-hmm. believe all this that, like I said before, they the rankings are trying to do too much. So we take them as the basis for arguments. We take them as, as the best estimate of how good players are, but then we also want to use them for all these sort of justice type purposes. And you can't have the same thing, do both. And the longer the pandemic disrupts the tour, um, uh, the more players take time off to be mothers, the more injuries affect the tour, all these things make it harder and harder for the rankings to do all those things. So what I think should happen is have two systems. So one is the race. 
turn tennis into like you, like you mentioned the the FedEx race in golf or like every team sport in the world. Yeah. The race is the main story. Everybody starts January 1st, zero and zero tied in first place, just like the Orioles were a few days ago. And they still are now I checked before. Um, so all your Orioles fans will be happy about that. The Tigers even were, were in first place before the season started. Um, every tennis player will have the same thing to enjoy. At the same time, there will be a super sophisticated ELO-like system that adjusts for surface. It, it does all these things we're talking about, just like ELO does now. And that will be used for tournament entries. So if you, you know played really well in 2019, but chose not to play on tour because of the pandemic in 2020, in other words, if you're Ash Barty, you, you get into every tournament, maybe use it for seeding too. You're still number one um, in, in the draw you get that benefit, but you're still tied with everybody else at the beginning of the season, zero and zero. If you lose your first match, you're zero and one and you're tied for last. Um, that's the big story everybody talks about, but still, you know, even if you're zero and five in, in March or April, you still have the benefit of this longer term system. So we have, we would then have a system that is fan friendly, player friendly, everyone can follow it. It generates headlines. It gets people excited about Aslan Karatsev. At the same time, it's getting everyone excited about Djokovic and Ashley Barty and Naomi Osaka. But behind the scenes, we have a super sophisticated way of making sure that the best players in terms of how they're playing now are getting into tournaments. They're getting into tournaments on the surfaces that they play best on, meaning that every tournament every week has the best field possible. And you can only have that if you have a pretty sophisticated algorithm running in the background. And that's not fan friendly. It's not player friendly. <laughs> no one besides, you know, a few guys in a dark room in the basement of ATP headquarters in Jacksonville is going to know what goes into that formula. That's not true. It should be transparent. But you get the idea. It's complicated. But what, what that means, the payoff for the complication is that it works. Like mm -hmm. that's how you really know who's good right now. That's how you're deciding who gets into tournaments. And you, I mean, you deal with the, the, the fairness and, you know, injury returns and maternity leave returns the way you need to based on the priorities of the tour, what the players vote on, what the tour thinks is important. That's great. I think it's important to do that. But instead of having this system where it seems like you're making up arbitrary rules every few months, you have one underlying thing that determines who gets into tournaments and you don't worry about it. Like you say, I, I don't worry about the rankings very much. I often don't know what the rankings are. I don't even know what the ELO rankings are. I mean, I watch tennis cause it's fun. Not because I want to know whether 23 beats 21 on, you know, April 6th. Uh, and I think most people are like that as well. So give me something fun for the headlines, like I say, give me the race and make the actual decisions about who's going into tournaments, who's being seated at tournaments, get that right. And you can't do both at the same time, so stop trying. That's yeah. my solution. That is a beautiful synopsis. I would say that is how a lot of people, a lot of tennis fans around the globe feel. And, you know, again, uh, I cannot thank you enough. I know I speak for all of us. The work you guys do at Tennis Abstract makes it possible for us to be better educated fans, to find things like those statistical trends. I know I speak for anyone in tennis journalism, and I use that word lightly, of course, but we all use Tennis Abstract. It's what you have to use if you want to do any quality work in this business. For our listeners, one more time, I know we we talked about it at the top, Jeff, but where can they find all of your work? What are you up to these next few weeks? 
Well, it's all at tennisabstract.com. If you go go there, you can find the ELO ratings we're talking about. You can find the stats leaderboards that Alex is talking about, which I'm going to look at more because I kind of forgot about those. <laughs> and you're talking about it like it's your homepage, and I'm a little worried about what, what might be wrong with them. Uh, <laughs> but you've got my, my daily podcast there. My my weekly podcasts are on that front page as well. So you can you can listen to me talk for another few hours if you want. Um, I've also got this daily baseball podcast that I'm doing during the baseball season. It's called The Opener. So openerpodcast.com will get you there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. Uh, I know I've got a, a long-form podcast coming out tomorrow, again, since since listening to me for this hour was surely not enough. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's all it's all there. I mean, bookmark tennisabstract.com, and, and I, I hope you won't regret it. That's my my really powerful, clear advertisement on my website and, you know, click on stuff. Yeah, no, it was it was powerful indeed. I'll tell you this, they'll get there and they'll see right away one of the initial blogs. Aslan Karatsev isn't better than Novak Djokovic, but that's just <laughs> that's just a good headline, my friend. Well done as always. And again, appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Hope you and your family are staying safe and healthy. And obviously I'm sure I will talk to you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it, Alex. Thanks. Yep. As always, stay safe, stay healthy. You too. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman. He mentioned it at the end, but you know you can find his two podcasts, the Tennis Abstract podcast, the Expected Points podcast on the TennisAbstract.com website. You can also find his fantastic blog posts and everything they're doing at Tennis Abstract. I've said it once. I'll say it a million times. It's the best resource in tennis. If you want to become a smarter fan, if you want to gamble on the sport, whatever it is you want to do, uh, your, your life as a tennis fan will be improved by working Tennis Abstract into it more frequently. So again, a thank you to Jeff, not only for appearing on the podcast today, but for all of the hard work he does to make it easier and more enjoyable uh, to be a tennis fan. But of course, again, that's our first third review. Now all eyes turn towards the clay court season. We've got a fun GSP plan for you later in the week. Gil Gross of Monday Match Analysis fame of the three uh, podcast fame, a fellow Tennis Channel Podcast Network brother and you know friend of the program at this point going to join us to talk about the biggest storylines heading in to the clay court season. Of course, we're also going to have David Gertler and Matt Stokoya, Chris Halioris on this week to discuss uh, the college tennis world, the challenger tennis world and you know day in day out there's still results happening on the ATP tour so of course if you want to hear more about and WTA tour by the way so if you want to hear more about that action go check out the mini break podcast and of course like rate subscribe review this show the mini break podcast correct interviews podcast and everything we're doing here at cracked rackets you need more immediate updates Twitter Instagram Facebook YouTube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me directly I'm at great shot pod shout out as always to the super producers Max Fligner Daniel Wastoff for the of an editing job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at Turna and Gamma you you know the deal by now go to GammaSports.com promo code is CRACK20 of course you can find Turna Grip wherever you buy your grip so uh, you know be sure to give our friends at Gamma and Turna the support that they give us as well. But with that in mind, for my wonderful guests, Jeff Sackman, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Gamma and Turner, and everyone here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say? Hey, great shot. We'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.